Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promise that your word can do what only it can do and that, Lord, empowered by your spirit, it will, it will lay our soul open. Lord, any desire that we have to stay hidden from your sight, any desire that we have to keep certain parts of our heart, certain parts of our life tucked away in darkness under the delusion that you can't see them if we try hard enough to hide them. Anything that we've got going on in our mind and our heart right now that seeks to do that, I ask, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, that you, would, that you would lay that thing down, that you would fillet that thing wide open, that you would give us the courage to trust in who you really are, and that you would empower the reading and the preaching of your word to divide our hearts and souls down to that place of intention and motivation that you may come and heal the things that need to be healed. We ask this, Lord, that we would continue to be cultivated, that our souls would continue to be cultivated to reflect the character of your son Jesus, in whose name we pray and for whom, whose glory we do all that we do. Amen. If you've got your Bibles, uh, open them up to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 9. We are in an ongoing series as we're, we're walking through the book of Acts, and pay no attention to me as I continue to mess with this microphone cord. Uh, we're in an ongoing series as we're walking through the book of Acts, uh, and we're actually talking about what it means to enjoy God deeply and engage in his mission. We don't believe that the church itself has a particular mission that it has to engage in, but that God has a mission and he has a people for that mission. And the book of Acts is all about God's mission and God's purpose of redemption and the people that he has created by his word and through his grace for that very reason. That's what we've been talking about. That's what we've been looking at. And this morning we come to Acts chapter 9, one of the most pivotal, pivotal chapters in the book of Acts, and one of the most important stories in the history of humanity, honestly. So if you've got your Bibles, Acts chapter 9, we're not going to waste any time. There's a lot to get into this morning. I'm going to read and talk, read and talk. For those of you who are new with us, that's kind of my pattern. I'll try not to linger too far sometimes. Chapter 9, verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and He asked him for letters to the synagogue, to Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So we're going to start, we're going to to set up what we're going to see this morning. We're we're back talking about this this man, Saul. We first made mention of Saul a few weeks ago, back in in Acts chapter 7, where we saw that one of the the church's servants, named Stephen, had had been brought before the high council, the religious leaders, and and he'd been put on trial for continuing to proclaim the gospel. And as he gave a defense for the message that he had trusted and the message that he had believed, the council became enraged at what he was saying, and they rushed him. And Luke made the details really clear to us, saying, gnashing their teeth, they, they rushed Stephen, and they did what seems almost inhuman, and they, they stoned this man to death. They picked up rocks. They threw them at him so forcefully and repeatedly that it actually killed him. And Luke made note in in chapter 7 that there was a young man standing by who was holding the cloaks, holding the coats of those who who stoned Stephen to death. And his name was Saul. And then a couple verses later in Acts chapter 1, I mean Acts chapter 8, Stephen reminded us in verse 1 that Saul, that man who was holding the cloaks for those who who did what seemed so inhuman to that man Stephen, he actually approved of Stephen's execution. And he began to go around the church. We go around Jerusalem like a wild animal 
Luke had said earlier, seeking those who, who he might devour. And a great persecution arose up against the church at that very time. And, and when what would seem natural for Luke to continue on to tell us about this man Saul, he actually kind of took a break and he gave us another snapshot of another servant in the church, a man named Philip. And, and Luke gave us a little look at Philip's ministry. But more importantly, not so much of what Philip had done, but what God had done in Philip and how God was fulfilling the promises that he had given his church. And we saw how through Philip and his obedience to God and his faithfulness to the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ was being spread not only from Jerusalem, but then through that persecution and through Philip to Samaria, just as Jesus had promised. Those who had a long-standing hostility and animosity with the Jewish people, those were now being brought into the family of God through the preaching of the gospel and the power of the gospel. And he told us of a story of Philip meeting an Ethiopian eunuch. A man who, because of his place in life and his situation in life, had been barred from the true worship of God in the temple, had been turned away from the place of worship before God, seeking to come and worship God, and how Philip met him on the road as the Holy Spirit led him there, and he opened up the scriptures with him and began to teach him how they all pointed to Jesus, and we see him get saved. And so Luke gave us this little, this little shift. When you, when you think he's going to talk about Saul, who's ravaging the church, he goes to how the gospel, in the midst of all this, is continuing to thrive, and we see the conversion of Samaria, the conversion of the Ethiopian, and now he's going to come back to this man, Saul, and we're going to see the conversion of one of the most important men in human history. Maybe second to Jesus Christ himself, no other man has played as prominent a role in the forward motion of God's purposes on earth than, than this man, Saul. It was a transformation and really a salvation that was unexpected. It was unanticipated. And as we talk about it, we'll see it was radical in, in nature. And so here's Saul. He's breathing threats, threats of murder against the church. He's continuing on in that persecution of God's people. I mean, Luke does a great job of painting a picture for us here of the intensity of, of, of Saul's hostility towards the church. I mean, here's this zealous Jewish man, this this Pharisee, this, this keeper of the law, this religious leader and this religious teacher, and he's breathing out threats of, of murder against the disciples. As you begin to listen to Luke tell the story of this man, Saul, as you listen to him tell the, the story of his intensity and his hostility towards the church, I want you to picture a, a wild beast, like a, like a wild bull. Have you ever seen like a, a wild bull or a bull that's pinned up in a, in a ring and he can't get to the rest of the, the bulls and the cows around him? Some of the Bibles do this a really disservice and injustice in translation where it, it says he's, he's breathing out threats of, of murder against the disciples. That is actually, grammatically says, he's breathing in threats of murder. That's what the words actually mean. And, and so you begin to think, how, how in the world do you breathe in threats of of murder, And when you go and, and look at what this word means and the picture that it's painting, it's painting a picture for us of a, of a bull who's prepared to strike, who's prepared to charge, who's snorting with anger and hostility towards that which his eyes are focused on that he's about to go and charge. You breathe in that hostility and that's what makes that snorting sound. And Luke's telling us that this man Saul has become so enraged, so hostile towards the people of the way, the, the people who have converted to the, to the message of Jesus Christ, to the word of the gospel, that he's breathing in threats of murder like a wild, angry beast seeking who to devour, and he's got his sights set on exactly those who he's going to go after. 
as he began to persecute those in Jerusalem and they began to scatter. People would go to areas all around the region. And Paul was not content to see those in Jerusalem put to death and to see the movement of the way stopped. He was so hostile to what the gospel was doing that he went to the high priest, the chief religious leader in Jerusalem, and he asked for letters, letters of commendation and permission to go to the synagogues in the area of Damascus, just outside of Jerusalem, so that if there were any of these converts to the way who had made their way to Jerusalem, who would continue to gossip the, the good news of this person of Jesus and spread that type of message to those people in the synagogues in Damascus, he wanted to go and take care of them. This is how hostile this man was to the message of the gospel. And so he got letters from the high priest, permission to make the trip to Damascus so that he could go into the synagogues, find out if anybody was delivering or gossiping this message of the gospel so that he could bind them up in chains, men and women, drag them back to Jerusalem where they could be persecuted, where they could be disciplined, where they could ultimately be murdered. Those were the threats that Paul was breathing in and breathing out. Such was his hostility towards the gospel, which got me thinking, and I want to take time, a few minutes on this. Why was Paul so angry about the way? I mean, why was Paul so hostile towards these people? I mean, what got him so enraged? What what got him so angry? And it's easy on the surface, and it does justice to his anger on the surface. I mean, these people were believing a message that the long-awaited Messiah, the one that the Jewish people have been wanting and hoping for and praying about and longing for for centuries, they were believing that he had actually come in this man Jesus and that he had then laid his life down to be crucified on a tree. And then he died. And he was buried in a tomb. And to Paul, this was the the utmost of blasphemy because according to the law, cursed is any man who is hanged on a tree. It says it very clearly in Deuteronomy 21. And so here are these fellow brothers and sisters of, of Israel believing that the one that they had been longing for and hoping for and waiting for had actually come, but then he was cursed. And they were believing in this guy. And so on one sense, you can actually see where Paul, as a, as a Pharisee, as a teacher of the law, as a, as a zealous man for the purity of the people, could become enraged that his people, that his friends, that his family were believing such things. But I don't really think that alone is what got him so hostile. As right as it would have been for Paul on some levels to be hostile at people believing that message, I really don't think that's the picture of, of what Luke is painting for us that burst the hostility in, in Saul. See, what I think really gets Saul boiling, what, what really gets him enraged, what really gets him to begin snorting like a wild beast, breathing out threats of murder against these people, are really the implications of the message that they're actually beginning to believe. And if you think back a few weeks to when we talked about Stephen standing before the council, and they had brought him before the, the council for spreading the, the news of this message, of this way, and he stood before them and he gave a defense for why he believed what he believed, and he began to tell them that all that they had put their trust in, all that they had put their hope in, all that they had believed that if they trusted in, that that they obeyed, that they did according to God's law, would bring them right standing before God, all of those things would amount to nothing. See, what I think brought so much hostility towards Paul and ultimately begins to bring so much hostility and angst into our own soul is actually the implications 
of the message of the gospel. That's what was driving Paul so insane. That's what was beginning to actually cause so much rage to rise up in his heart. These people were actually believing and then going around and gossiping, going around and spreading, going around and and proclaiming the the good news that the very long-awaited Messiah that Paul was waiting for, he had indeed come. And his name was Jesus of Nazareth, and he had been born a virgin, of a virgin. And then for 33 years, he lived a life of absolute perfect obedience before God, not out of some sense of duty, that he might earn a righteousness or a right standing before God, but out of a sense of delight for who God the Father really was. Jesus of Nazareth actually lived the life that Paul was created to live. And then this Jesus of Nazareth, born of a virgin, who lived a life of worship before God and everything that he said and everything that he did, did then willingly lay his life down on a cross that he was crucified, that he did indeed die, and that he was buried in a borrowed tomb, and he stayed there for three days. This is what they were believing. And then they believed that God the Father, looking upon his son Jesus, raised him from the dead, conquering sin, conquering death, conquering darkness. And here's what really got him going outside of that it was that those who were a part of this way began to actually believe. They actually began to believe that God the Father then would offer them the right standing that Jesus had had earned because of his perfect obedience of love and worship in their place. And then that when Jesus died, God raised him from the dead and he poured out all of his wrath on Jesus on the cross so that those who believed in the person of Jesus and what he had done in their place, living the life that they were supposed to live and dying for their sins, could actually be forgiven by God the Father. That God the Father would take the right standing of Jesus the Son and he would take the punishment that he had absorbed in our place And he would accept that as the final sacrifice for sin. And then for those who were believing on Jesus for what they had done, he would then give them Jesus' right standing. All of the forgiveness, all of the restoration, all of the redemption, all that Paul was longing for, all the people of Israel were longing for, they were actually believing had come in this man, Jesus. And what so enraged Paul about that is that it meant that everything that he was doing to try to earn God's favor, everything that he had done to keep the law so perfectly, everything that he had built his sense of right standing on, the family he came from, the heritage that he had, the learning that he had, the obedience that he had, the knowledge that he had, everything that he had begun to put his hope in so that he could stand before God and receive some sense of righteousness before God, all been washed away. If the message of the gospel, if what these people of the way were believing was actually true, it meant that everything that Paul believed was actually a lie. It meant that all that he had placed his hope in, it couldn't get him what he thought it would get him. That's what began to drive Paul so crazy. His life had been built like that, that Jenga game. Have you ever played Jenga? 
his life was like that Jenga tower. And he had carefully crafted the perfect tower. Piece by piece by piece by piece by piece. And the message of the gospel was slowly poking those pieces out. And it had gotten down to the last piece. If this thing really was true, then everything he had built his life on was going to come crumbling down. You see, the message of the gospel was declaring to Paul, and it was declaring to those who would listen, that you really are a whole lot worse than you could ever imagine. As bad as you think you are, you're actually a whole lot worse than you could really imagine. But in Christ, in Christ, because of the person and work of Jesus Christ, for those who place their hope and faith on him, you're actually more loved by God than you can ever dream. And none of it has anything to do with what you can do and accomplish. That's what was eating Paul alive. And he couldn't stand it. Because it meant that all of his work and all of his effort and all the manicuring of his reputation, it was for nothing. And he couldn't have it anymore. He couldn't have it anymore. And so he spent his life and he spent his time trying to eradicate it. The grace of God didn't amaze Saul. The grace of God didn't bring wonder into Saul's heart, heart and into Saul's soul. It doesn't to a number of your hearts. The message of enjoying the grace of God that comes freely through the person of Jesus Christ doesn't bring wonder and amazement into, ton of, into a number of your hearts. Ultimately, probably for the chief reason it didn't for Saul's, we are so deeply entrenched in our own sense of self-righteousness. We so desperately want to prove to God that we're worthy of his love. And the gospel says that apart from the mercy and grace of Jesus, we're nothing but sinners. And we can't earn the righteousness of God. But that God loves us more than we could ever dream in Jesus. And Paul couldn't stand it. He couldn't stand it. And so he had to shut it down. Verse 3. So now Paul goes on his way, and he's approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light flashed around him. So here's Paul on a desert road. He's making a 130-mile journey. It's going to take him about six days, and he's going to recount his conversion about three more times in, in the scriptures. And if we piece them all together, which we won't do this morning, what we'll find is that he was traveling at about noontime. So here's Paul going down a desert road with all the animosity and hostility and passion and rage boiling in his heart. His eyes are set firmly on the place that he's going. He's got a mission that he's going to accomplish. He's got a, he, you can think about a driven man. Can you see him? He, he's on this desert road headed straight to Damascus in the middle of the day, and the sun's at its highest point. And all of a sudden, a light actually begins to eclipse the sun. A light so bright, it's brighter than the noonday sun in the middle of the desert, begins to engulf him. Luke actually uses the language of a flash, like a flash of lightning, a burst of light so bright that it eclipses the noonday sun. It actually begins to knock Paul off his, off his horse or off his donkey. 
falling to the ground, verse 4. He said, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That repetition of his name. That's a particular device used in ancient literature to connotate a very personal, a very intimate particular relationship. It happens about 15 times in the scriptures. It happens in times like when Abraham is about to sacrifice his son Isaac on the altar as the knife is in his hand and he's about to come down and a voice from heaven comes and says, Abraham, Abraham. And God stays his hand and offers a sacrifice in his place. It happens again when Moses is in the wilderness and he sees a burning bush and hears a voice coming from that bush saying, Moses, Moses. He connotates an intimacy, a, a depth of relationship. You see it with Samuel. On the midnight hour being cared for by the prophet Eli, he hears a voice saying, Samuel, Samuel. And it's God speaking personally and intimately to Samuel, calling him into the place and into the purposes for which he had for him. You hear Jesus saying it to Martha in the gentleness of a rebuke. Martha, Martha. You hear Jesus saying it again on the cross. In that moment of sacrifice for our sin and the absorption of God's wrath in our place, you hear him crying out, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? There's an intimacy. There's a depth of connection that's being related here. And Saul gets knocked down in this flash of light. And a voice speaks out to him, Saul, Saul, why? Why are you persecuting me? Verse 5, and he said, who are you, Lord? It's a term of respect. And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. How astounding is that moment? How astounding for Paul was that moment? Here he is in the fullness of his rage, headed to Damascus to eradicate those who had brought such dishonor to the name of God and the worship of God. In all that passion, he's blinded by a light that comes from the heavens, and he hears a voice. Why are you persecuting me? He doesn't know who it is. Who are you, Lord? And the first thing he hears, I'm Jesus. The name that had sent him into the rage that he was in. The person who was at the center of the controversy and the blasphemy that has caused Paul's soul to boil over with such rage. The person that the people are claiming that God has raised from the dead and has offered to us by faith his righteousness and God's forgiveness. The blasphemy of a man being hung on a tree and all of a sudden, here's this man coming from the heavens, this voice. It's Jesus, Paul. Could you imagine what was going on in his mind? I mean, can you imagine what he must have felt in that moment. This was the name that Paul could not stand to hear. The name that would come off of people's lips that would cause Paul to send him into a murderous rage. This is now the man who's speaking to him. 
I am Jesus. Those three words were a complete refutation of everything that Paul believed and everything ultimately that his life had been about to that point. But second to that, just quickly, what often gets pointed out that's so beautiful. I mean, who had Saul been persecuting? I mean, who, who had Saul been persecuting? Who was Saul going to Damascus to get? He was going to get the Christians. He was going to get the people of the way, those who were believing this message of what was being called the gospel, those who were believing this message of this person of Jesus. Saul didn't persecute Jesus. But here Jesus is so deeply identifying himself with his people that those who have believed on him and his work by faith are now in him, are being identified in him. God now sees them in him so that the persecution that was coming towards them was actually a persecution of Jesus himself. Jesus had so identified with his people as he still does with us today. But the persecution against God's people, the sin against the name of Jesus is one and the same. I love this. Look at verse 6. Jesus says, rise, enter the city, and you will be told what you're going to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. And Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So the flash of light is gone. It's back to the noonday sun, and Saul rises from the ground, but now he can't see. He still can't see. It's just darkness. And so they led him by the hand, and they brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight. He neither ate nor drank. So Saul is now entering Damascus. The place that he had set out to go probably six days earlier, he's now entering. He had one particular mission, one particular agenda, but Jesus had absolutely changed that agenda. The purpose for which Saul was going to Damascus had now changed. And it's not a change that Saul had made. It's a change that Jesus had made. Saul had one reason for going, and Jesus has overwhelmed him and interrupted his plans. And has now flipped the script on Paul, or Saul, he'll eventually become Paul. I'll do that all morning. I'll flip his name. He had now changed it on him. And there was a new purpose for him being there. But as you read this, don't miss the picture. Don't go so fast to get to the implications and miss the picture. Here's Saul, the man that Luke said was this wild, ravaging beast. The guys who write those great, helpful works in the Bible about word pictures and what words mean say it was like a, a battle horse snorting a battle. Here's this wild battle horse on his way to Damascus. And when he gets there, he's like an old horse that's been put out the pasture. He's being led by the hand, blind. He can't even find his way in. His friends are having to hold him and to get him into the place where he was going. Don't miss the picture of what God was doing into him. And can you imagine if the believers of the way had got word that Saul of Tarsus was coming? We're going we're gonna to find out in a minute they knew who he was. Can you imagine? We don't know. But if they actually got word, like if they had you know, spies on the road maybe, and they got word that Saul of Tarsus was actually coming to Damascus, and they spread the word around town that this man who was, who was persecuting the believers of the way was coming to get us. What we need. Can you imagine what they must have thought when they saw this man coming through the gates? This wild man who was murdering Christians, who was responsible for the murder of the people of the way in Jerusalem, who gotten permission to come and get them. And here he, 
Here he comes to the gates, unable to see, being helped by his friends. What must they have thought? Is this the guy we're supposed to be so afraid of? Really? A five-year-old could take it. What's going on? Everybody's kind of in flux at this point. For three days, Saul was in darkness, in hunger, in thirst. For three days, he was left to deal with himself and to deal with the man Jesus, whom he had met just days earlier on that road. See, though Paul or Saul at that point was was physically blind and he couldn't see, he had seen the risen Christ. And when he had seen the risen Christ, what he saw for the very first time was who he really was. All that Saul had not believed about himself finally came crashing down as true to him. When he saw the risen Christ, for the first time, Paul was actually confronted with himself. He was actually confronted, not with darkness from the outside, but the depth of the darkness on the inside of him. His life had been utterly wrong. That which he had built his hope on had been utterly wrong. That for which his reputation was staked on had been wrong. That for which he had hoped to stand before God and be counted as righteous had been wrong. And there was nothing that he could do in himself to make it right. That's what he was stuck with. Later, when he wrote a letter to the church in Rome, he would say in chapter 7 that I found that there was nothing good that lived in me. He could not see physically, but for the first time, he had a chance to see who he really was because he came face to face with the risen Christ. Look at verse 10. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias? And Ananias said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And in the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So you know that God has prepared Saul for this man named Ananias. What you're going to find out in just a second is that Ananias had no kind of preparation for this man named Saul. Saul didn't know if Ananias was a member of the way who was going to come and persecute him. He didn't know if he was a fellow Pharisee or a zealot for the law who would come and rescue him. He didn't know, but he just knew that this man was going to come and he was going to help him see again. But Ananias had no such preparation for Saul, which helps you understand verse 13. Ananias answered, Lord... I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priest to, to bind all who, who call on your name. You hear what he's saying there? Say, I, I, I'm here, Lord. Do you really know who that is? You know, Saul's a common name to the Jewish people. It's like Bob. Are you sure you got the right Saul? I mean, have you actually heard what he's done to your people in Jerusalem? Are you sure? Do do you have your, your facts straight? Sounds a bit like 
Jonah, doesn't he? This sounds a bit like you and I. We have a habit, maybe it's just me. But we have a habit very often of instructing God on the best way things ought to be done. We have a habit of, of trying to inform God of things and details he just may not be aware of when it comes to particular things that he is calling us and urging us and compelling us to go and do. But God wasn't confused. He wasn't misinformed. Though Ananias was more concerned about his safety at first than he was for God's purposes and God's glory, the message gets through. At verse 15, but the Lord said to him, just cut him off. Ananias is pleading this case, and he just says, stop. Go. For he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And so with the assurance that has come now from God, and the direction that's come now from God, Ananias goes to a man named Judas' house on the street that's called Straight to confront this fire-breathing, death-inducing, ravenous, hostile zealot named Saul of Tarsus. And so Ananias departed and he entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. See, immediately, Luke said, immediately upon the obedience of Ananias, and Ananias going to Saul and and delivering him the message that God had given him, immediately something like scales dropped from his eyes. And, And Luke wants you to hear that word immediately. And he's not so concerned with what was actually happening in the process in Paul. What he wants you to catch is the suddenness of what was going on. As quickly as a flash of lightning came in the middle of a noonday sun and overwhelmed Saul, then Jesus spoke to him as quickly and suddenly scales have now fallen from Saul's eyes. And for the first time, he now sees differently. See, what Luke wants us to see in this, and we're not going to argue the, the, the details of way, ways things begin to happen in the soul when God get, begins to work, because what Luke wants you to see is this conversion, this transformation, this absolute, utter redemption of a man is nothing but owed to the sovereign grace of God. It was sudden. It was instant. It was absolutely authoritarian. Saul had a particular mission that he was on. Jesus didn't ask him what he thought about it. Jesus didn't offer him an alternative. Jesus overwhelmed him in a moment, spoke to him directly, told him exactly what he was going to go do, and didn't doubt it for an instant. Before anything that was is, before God created anything that exists, God had called Saul and set him apart for his purposes. And this was the moment that God was calling Saul to himself. He didn't ask him what he thought. He didn't give him an option. He came in, he overwhelmed him, and he directed him him to the way he would go. He took away his sight, he gave it right back to him. 
When Ananias wants to throw up a defense about going and being part of, of God's work of redeeming this man who he did not believe was worthy of God's redemption, God did not ask him what he thought about it. He said, go, for I have a purpose. I have a plan for this man. The conversion of Saul, who will be called Paul, his transformation, his salvation, is owing to nothing but the sovereign grace of God. Saul's heart in no way was after Jesus. There is nothing about Saul that was desirous of the person and work of the man Jesus of Nazareth. Paul was hostile to the person of Jesus. Paul was ravenous towards the people who were believing in Jesus. Paul hated the message of the gospel that people were believing. He was breathing murderous threats towards those who were associated with this man, Jesus. And in Acts chapter 23, we'll get to it, he said that up until that moment when Jesus overwhelmed him on that road, he lived with a clean conscience before God based on what he was doing. No guilt at all in his soul for what he was doing. There was nothing in Saul that was pursuing Jesus, his conversion and transformation is owing to nothing but God's sovereign grace. That's the first thing Luke wants us to see. Second thing is, not only is it owing to God's sovereign grace, but he wants us to catch the bigger picture that God's sovereign grace extends even to the chiefest of sinners. You see, the conversion, the transformation, the salvation, this experience that happened to Saul in, on, Dema- on the road to Damascus and in Damascus, this happened to the one person that no one wanted this to happen to or expected it to happen to. There were few people, if any, who were a part of the way, who were believers on Jesus, who probably, when push came to shove, wanted to see Saul get saved. Honestly. And there's certainly no one, and I'll find out and be corrected one day, I'll meet him in heaven, I'm sure, who expected this man Saul to get saved. I mean, for Saul to come back to Jerusalem after this time in Damascus, as we're going to see that happens in the next couple of chapters, and to stand before the apostles and to stand before the church and say that I have now been transformed by this man Jesus, and he's now sending me to be the apostle, to be the, the preacher to the Gentiles, is the same as Osama bin Laden walking in that back door and saying that I have been transformed by Jesus and he's sending me to be a missionary to the Islamic nations. I don't expect that to happen this morning. And I can't be honest with you what my response would be if he did. I would probably be a little suspect. No one expected this to happen. Certainly not Saul himself. Because see, if, if the gospel was true, if this message was, was really true and he actually believed it, it meant that everything that he stood for was wrong. And that just as public as his faith had been before, and just as public as his persecution of the way had been now, so public would his humiliation be in front of everybody to have to stand and say that I was wrong. I missed it. I missed it. There was so much at stake in this. 
so much at stake in it for you. No one expected, no one anticipated this to actually happen. You see, if you're, if you're honest, and we say this often, this is one of the most difficult places on the face of the earth to actually be honest. It's kind of ironic. But if you're honest, there are people in your mind right now, if I were to give you a second to think, who you don't expect the sovereign grace of God to actually transform. And if you're really honest, I didn't make you raise your hands, you could probably come up with one or two people or people groups you probably would prefer not to see the sovereign grace of God transform. If you're honest. Maybe it's those who are affiliated with that particular sin that bothers you so deeply that to see the grace of God actually extend itself into would challenge your sense of self-righteousness. You didn't do it. You haven't done it. You've built a little Jenga tower of your own. If you're really honest, there are those people you don't expect to be transformed by the gospel, and there are those people that you probably would just assume not be transformed by the gospel. But what Luke is trying to convey to us in this story, and in really the connection to the stories that led up into it, and the revival that broke out in Samaria, and the transformation of the, the eunuch, the Ethiopian eunuch on the road, and now the conversion of this man Saul, is that there is absolutely no one on the face of this earth in whom the sovereign grace of God is not able to reach and transform. There is not one person on the face of the earth who is beyond the sovereign grace of God. Not one. And that includes many of you. The conversion of Saul was owing nothing to anything in Saul, but only to the sovereign grace of God. And that grace extends even to the chief of sinners. And when that grace extends to anyone, when that grace reaches out and transforms the life of a man or a woman and begins to cultivate the soul to reflect the character of Christ, that transformation is utterly complete. Everything about you gets transformed. See, when God came to Ananias and he said, I want you to go. I want you to go to see this man named Saul of Tarsus. I want you to go get him. Here's what he said. Ananias said, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. Before I got up here, Chris was talking about some of the fundamental identities that we have talk about a lot, that we remind ourselves of, that we try to, rem- to, to remember on a daily basis and then live out of, uh, identities of the gospel transforming us into ambassadors and, and servants. And one of the identities that's so common in the New Testament when the gospel begins to transform a soul, and we didn't put it in the list, and maybe I should change that and lobby for it. You see it all throughout the New Testament. When the gospel gets a hold of a man or woman, often referred to, most often referred to in the New Testament as saints. As saints. When God's sovereign grace reaches out and begins to transform the soul of a man or a woman, they have been set apart by God. They have been set apart by God for His glory and clothed in the righteousness of His Son. And when God looks on them, He doesn't see their past. He doesn't see their present sin and struggle. 
He sees the righteousness of his son, Jesus, and he calls them saints. Set apart for his glory, clothed in the righteousness of his son, forgiven by his life and his sacrifice. You need to understand that. We need to understand that. When the gospel and God's grace begins to transform a soul, it sets us apart and utterly changes the fundamental identity of how we understand ourselves in relation to our own soul and in relation to God himself, and that in Christ, he sees us as saints. He sees you as a saint. And when you wake up tomorrow morning and your feet hit the ground, you need to remind yourself that in Christ, God sees you as a saint. He doesn't see you for what you did yesterday. He doesn't see you for what you will do in five minutes. He sees you for what Jesus did on your behalf. And if you can actually begin to believe that, if you can actually begin to cultivate that in your own soul on a daily basis, I absolutely guarantee you it will transform the way that you see every circumstance that you face in your life. God sees you as a saint. Set apart for his purposes and his glory. Forgiven by the life, death, and resurrection of his son. And clothed in the right standing that he earned on your behalf. That's how he sees you. There's another picture he gives here. Both of which probably owing its own sermon. But is there a sweeter introduction between two people in scripture than verse 17? When Ananias is assured by God that this man Saul of Tarsus has a purpose in God's plan. And in obedience, he goes to the man named Judas' house on the street that's called Straight. And he comes face to face with this man Saul. This man whose reputation preceded him all the way into town. He comes face to face with Saul. And he looks at him and he says, Brother Saul, is there a sweeter introduction between two people in the Bible than that. Here was a man whose hostility led him to the murder of people that Ananias may have known. But because of what God's grace had done in this man's life, because of God's word to Ananias that the grace that had changed him and the grace that he was trusting in had now been extended to this man's soul, when Ananias looked at him man to man and face to face, He didn't deal with him according to what he had done in the past. He didn't deal with him according to what he was fearing that he would do in the present. He dealt with him according to the way that Jesus had dealt with him, the way that God now defined him as a brother. And when God's grace begins to transform our fundamental identity, we begin to see ourselves in Christ, a part of the family of God. Ananias might be one of the best examples of what it means to live a life that's driven by the grace of God. If anybody had a right To come up to Saul with any air, with any distance, with any hostility. In this moment, it would have been Ananias, but instead he came in the grace of God that had rescued him, that had now been been given to this man, Saul. This is what it means to actually be a people who are, are centered on the gospel and driven by the grace of God. The gospel has a way of overcoming all of the barriers and all the hostilities that our sin are so insistent upon building. That's what Kent Hughes said, one of the best commentaries on this book. He said, the angels must have sung the most beautiful song 
when they heard Ananias' words of forgiveness. Ananias probably knew some young women who had been widowed by Saul. Perhaps some of his own friends had been orphaned by Saul's bloodbath or had been killed themselves. But Ananias, whose name means God is gracious, in that moment forgave Saul. Because the two men were now brothers in Christ, they were now part of the same body. The gospel, the sovereign grace of God extended to the chief of sinners, renders a transformation that is absolutely, utterly complete down to the deepest foundations of your soul and down to the deepest foundations of your identity. And years later, when Saul would recount this moment, now Paul, recounting this moment in Damascus, when the scales fell off of his eyes, and he had seen the risen Christ, and he had seen himself for who he really was, and he had tasted the sweetness of God's grace being extended to him, this is what he would say to his disciple Timothy. He'd say, Timothy, this saying is trustworthy. And it's deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason. Get this. I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, or the chief of sinners, Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who will believe in him for eternal life. What's the big deal with Luke recording this conversion of Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus? It's the fact that God saved Saul for your sake. When God's sovereign grace extended down to the man Saul of Tarsus, in whose so much hostility towards his son Jesus had grown, God had his eyes on you. God's transformation of Saul was meant to paint a picture for you of his perfect patience. It was to make God's long-suffering and divine patience perfectly clear to you so that for those who would believe on Jesus, who already have, or for those of you who ultimately will, you begin to see that your life before that moment of God's sovereign grace extending itself into your soul was one long line of persecution of the man Jesus. One long rejection and one long disregard for him. That's why Saul will now say here to Timothy that God's salvation of his soul is a picture of Jesus' patience towards us. A perfect patience, a divine mercy, he says, that God is offering to all who will believe on the name and the work of the man Jesus, even today. Even today. God's eyes were not just fixed on this man Saul, but they were looking down the road to this very place, this very room, to your very soul. He did it that we might see his patience and his mercy towards those of us who continue to continue in our sin and our disregard. For those of us who have who have put our hope and put our trust and put our faith in this man, Jesus. Saul's conversion, Saul's story, the portrait of God's grace should encourage you to not lose heart. To not lose heart towards those that you've got in your mind who you've begun to believe are beyond God's reach. 
And it should encourage you of God's long-suffering and, and God's patience towards those who don't really know him. It should encourage those of you who have yet to place your hope and your faith in this man, Jesus, to not believe the lies that you're beyond God's reach. To not believe the temptation that God is now angry with you, that he's done with you, that he no longer can reach you, that you're beyond his grip, that you can't be transformed. The portrait of Saul's conversion is meant to encourage you in God's sovereign grace. You know, this morning, as I try to put a bow on this thing, we like to always respond to the word of God, and we generally do it through a time of reflection, a time of prayer. Usually some questions will come up on the screen to help you process, but this morning we're going to do something just a little bit different. We're still going to respond because God's word always demands some kind of response, and God is leading you right now and however he wants you to respond. But here's what we're going to do. As the musicians are going to come up on the stage. They're going to lead us in a song during the time of reflection, and what I want you to do is just listen to the words, pay attention to the words, and before I pray, I'm going to read them to you now, and I want you to hear the Apostle Paul, the man Saul of Tarsus. I want you to hear these words as though he's, he's saying them to you. It's not going to be unfamiliar because we've already sung it this morning. But imagine Saul is sitting with you. And this is what he has to say. Come boldly to the throne of grace. You wretched sinners come. And lay your load at Jesus' feet and plead what he has done. How can I come, some soul may say. I'm lame and cannot walk. Remember what he was like? My guilt and sin have stopped my mouth. I sigh, but I dare not talk. Come boldly to the throne of grace, though lost and blind and lame. Jehovah is the sinner's friend and ever was the same. He makes the dead to hear his voice. He makes the blind to see. The sinner lost, he came to save and set the prisoner free. Come boldly to the throne of grace, for Jesus fills the throne. And those he kills, he makes alive. He hears the sigh or groan. Poor bankrupt souls who feel and know the hell of sin within. Come boldly to the throne of grace. The Lord will take you in. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your sovereign grace your grace that has your intention behind it to reach down into the darkest of hearts and the darkest of circumstances and to rescue us from ourselves and our sin. Lord, I ask that your Holy Spirit do what only it can do right now as we reflect upon these words and we hear this song, that you would move in hearts this morning in the way that you know particularly you need to move in each and every one of us. And I ask that your words lay bare thought and intention and motivation. And I ask that we have the courage this morning to respond Lord, however your spirit is directing us. May you be honored. May you be glorified. Amen.